Welcome to In Session, Conversations with University Counselors. I'm your host, Dinah Jansen. In this series, we welcome a number of Queen's University alumni who serve on Queen's University Council, and from them we learn much about their time as students at Queen's, their career paths after convocation, and what drives their motivations to serve the Queen's community as council members. Welcome and enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of In Session Conversations with University Counselors. I'm Dinah Jansen. And today I have the great pleasure to welcome into my virtual studio, Daniel Tisch, the vice chair of the Queen's University Board of Trustees and also a member of University Council. Hello, Daniel. Hi, Dinah. Nice to see you. Nice to see you too, even though we're still virtual. <laughs> it's great to be able to connect with folks just like you. So, Daniel, you sound like a very busy person with all of the work that you're doing with Queen's University these days, and we're going to talk quite a lot about that. So before getting into the work that you do with trustees and university council, can we, can we learn a little bit about you and uh, maybe a little bit about your career path outside of Queen's? Sure, yeah. Um, well, um, uh, I, I, I came to Canada as, uh, as a small small boy with my parents uh where my family is latin american and um uh and i have very i only have the dimmest memories uh of those early days i don't remember coming i was too young but um but i remember um you know my early school days uh growing up in toronto in the, in the 70s and uh it was a very different world a very different society um you know and and uh i um, i grew up in toronto and saw the city just you know, transform and become this incredibly uh, diverse and uh, an exciting place. Um, and um, and I remember when I was when I finished high school, I was deciding where I wanted to go, and I wanted to go to a university that uh, I didn't. I wanted to get get out of Toronto. I wanted to experience something different. Um, and uh, and I still remember to this day the first visit I had to Queen's University. It was it was the fall. Uh, and, uh, you know, I walked down by the lake and, you know, just walked around the campus and had a chance to talk to students and to faculty. And I just felt right away this sense of kinship and belonging, um, the warmth of the community, uh, the fact that it was a residential university, but also a place of high standards. Um, and uh, I never regretted that choice. Um, it was, I, I actually decided I had a hard choice between Queens and McGill in the end, very different experiences I would have had. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but as you can tell, obviously, I'm very passionate about the place and, and, um, uh, and it's been a lifelong uh, association with Queens. I did both my degrees at Queens, first an arts degree uh, in political studies, and then um, went to work a few years in the federal government, um, uh, was passionate about public policy, but then I took a different turn and did an MBA at Queens. Uh, an executive MBA program. And for the first time at about age 30, um, uh, I, I started becoming really interested in business and, and the opportunities to, uh, to do meaningful things in a business career. Um, and uh, then my, my connection back to Queens uh, came around when the opportunity to, uh, to join University Council came along and, uh, and one of the loveliest experiences I had uh, after joining the Board of Trustees was um, 
my son going to Queens, my elder son, right? So, so, so even though he was remote and uh, in Kingston and I was in Toronto and I was missing him, uh, you know, the fact that I knew at least five times every year for four board of trustees meetings and one university council meeting, I would, uh, I would be on campus and I'd get to see him. And that was, uh, that was a really nice and special thing. So it's been a very rewarding journey. Um, and, uh, I've, um, I've certainly cherished every minute of it. So are there moments in your time at Queen's University as a student, maybe in during your undergrad in poli-sci or even during your MBA program that really stood out for you in terms of the activities that you might have been engaged in as well? Well, the two things that I really plunged into, I plunged into a lot of things at Queen's, uh, but I, I really um, was deeply involved in the Queen's Journal for my, for my first couple of years at Queen's. Uh, I learned a lot just about how to, I, I think, you know, I already had strong communication skills and knew that whatever career I, I would go into would likely have some focus on communications. Uh, the, the ability to, uh, to, to analyze, to think critically, uh, and to create a, a really tight, uh, effective piece of writing, you know, I, I probably gained those skills more at the Queen's Journal than I, uh, than, than I did in any academic training I ever had. Right. So, um, did that for two years, was a, was sports editor for a year, served on the editorial board and wrote, wrote a lot of the editorials, um, and um, as well as some, you know, I was as a political studies student, I also had the opportunity while on the journal to uh, to go to political leadership conventions and events in Ottawa and and, you know, uh, model, participate in model parliament at Queen's. So there was a lot of uh, a lot of opportunities I had um, because of those associations. And the other thing I did in my last year at Queen's is I was a member of the executive of the uh, Arts and Science Undergraduate Society, ASSIS. Uh, and that was, uh, that was a tremendous amount of fun, uh, as well as a chance to, you know, just learn about governance and learn about uh, just kind of the, the to think of, of the university experience, not, not as much from a, a personal, through a personal lens, but more through a collective lens. And, and that was, that was, again, terrific, terrific experience that, um, uh, really brought me in touch with a lot of students, uh, and uh, and I think enhanced my interest in in uh, in governance and leadership roles. Amazing, thank you. So our student listeners in particular really do enjoy hearing about the career paths that uh, that alumni have taken. And since your MBA, you've gone back to Toronto again. You, you touched on it a little earlier, but can you dig a little deeper and tell us how do you got from point A to point B? Yeah, it's true. I, I haven't actually told you about any of the jobs I've held. <laughs> so yeah, so so when I worked when I worked in Ottawa, I uh, that was a that was initially I was a writer in the foreign affairs department. Um, I was, you know, I, I, was, I was there initially, it was a summer contract. And, and, uh, and so I would write speeches for diplomats, uh, nothing, you know, <laughs> terribly important, but, you know, just, you know, greetings and, and, uh, uh, you know, straightforward things, right, you know, and, 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 and I had a chance to write uh, part of the Department of Foreign Affairs at the time, it's called External Affairs, the annual report of the department. And so that gave me a really interesting overview of some of the work of the department. Um, and I then had an opportunity to go work for the Minister of Immigration, 
And, uh, and that was something kind of exciting for me because I played a role in setting up the Immigration and Refugee Board. Again, small role. I was very young, mm-hmm. you know, but, but I was, I was in, in charge of, you know, some elements of organization uh, as we went about, um, as, as the government went about selecting candidates for the board, right? And so I was kind of the one who keep it all keep the process organized and communicate with the candidates. And, and that was fascinating to me as a, as an immigrant myself, uh, my father as a boy was a refugee. And, and so that was a very meaningful thing. Um, and then my big, my first really big break was getting a job as um, an advisor and spokesperson uh, for the minister of health and welfare. And so I was the person who briefed the minister before a question period every day. Um, and that, you know, if the if the if my my time at the journal helped me uh, in kind of formulating a written message and thinking critically, this helped me think on the fly um, and and think about kind of the interface with with media, with with you know stakeholders, uh, you know the the role of of leaders mm-hmm. and leadership communication in in building public trust and confidence and and compliance with public health guidelines, for example, right? Um, after my MBA, um, and I had some more jobs, but I'll keep it short, you know, <laughs> after, after my MBA, um, you know, I went on to run a minister's office, again, just very interesting experience. But after my MBA, I um, uh, uh, actually, sorry, during my MBA, I made a big shift. And I decided to accept a job in Toronto with a uh, public relations consulting firm. Uh, and this was in the 90s. And um, and I was, um, uh, it was my first business job, uh, but um, it was an incredible opportunity that uh, I made. It was a very tough decision to move from the public sector to the private sector, to move from an organization with, you know, hundred, you know, tens of thousands of employees to, to, to an organization with 10, yeah. right? A small, small firm. Uh, but it's been you know, uh, I, I was with that firm for seven years. Um, I then had the opportunity to become part owner of my current firm and then ultimately majority owner. Um, and so um, uh, that's been incredibly rewarding to, to build a career where I have the privilege of working with leaders in many different uh, sectors, uh, you know, in, in, in healthcare, in, in agribusness, in uh, corporate finance, uh, in government, uh, wow. in in, in pharma, right? So, so I work with a lot of leaders and help them with their leadership communications, uh, help them with their stakeholder engagement, management of their reputations and brands, and, um, and, and also their engagement with their communities. So, mm-hmm. so it's, a, it's a very diverse practice that, where we touch a lot of organizations every year. Um, but it's very meaningful work that I deeply believe. You have an amazing career path. I, I, I'm, I, I wonder too. How do you how do you manage it all? Because it sounds like what the work that you do has long been really about PR in the public and private sectors, but that would also require a great amount of uh, research and study. I would imagine too, because you have to know what you're talking about in order to inform other people what the messaging is. How do you how do you do that, <laughs> or can you give us those trade secrets? Well, here's the interesting thing, right? I mean, when um, when I when I got into the public relations uh, field, you know, I, I kind of just fell into it because it was something I was good at, right? You know, okay. um, I had the I had politics. I my other the other thing I did is in, in at, at uh, Queens was English. I, I, for a while, I was 
a politics English medial, right, but ended up uh, drifting more to the po political courses. But, you know, so I had politics, I had English, I later had the MBA, um, you know, I had the experience at the Queen's Journal, uh, I had experience counseling senior cabinet ministers. And I guess when you put all that together, you know, um, it, it, it was a reasonably uh, decent package of capabilities that um, that really prepared me really well for a career advising um, leader, corporate and nonprofit and and government leaders on their communications, right, and and, and on their their uh, you know how to how to define their corporate purpose, how to engage their stakeholders, how to build their reputations and build business value, you know, from those things. Um, but uh, now today, uh, virtually. I'm not going to say 100%, but maybe 90% of the young grads that we hire have some sort of university degree, and then they have some sort of postgraduate training specifically in public relations, right? Mm -hmm. So they've done public relations pro professional certification, often a one-year program. Increasingly, now you're seeing people with undergraduate or graduate degrees, um, you know, in, in the field in communications management or public relations and, um, and so it's really has become a discipline that uh, has a very substantial academic body of knowledge and set of capabilities that you can, you can gain in part through your education. And that's the big difference. And, and so it's, it's certainly something I encourage students interested in these sorts of careers to, uh, to explore after their Queen's degree. Amazing insights. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. So, Daniel, let's let's shift gears a little bit and and look at your work on the board of trustees, as well as your work on Queen's University Council. Let's sure. start with trustees first. How did you get on the board of trustees, and what do you do there? What is the board of trustees? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, well, the board of trustees is uh, it oversees the uh, the. the is one of the university's governance bodies um, alongside the uh, the Senate, and obviously the Senate is the uh, is in charge of the the academic mandate and the academic uh, decision making for the university. The Board of Trustees, you know, has responsibility, of course, for the university's finance and its strategy, um, risk management, you know, those sorts of functions, and um, uh, and and my role on the University Council actually is what what created the opportunity to get on the board of trustees because uh, there are six members of university council that, that are on the 25 person board of trustees. And, um, uh, and I, I really hadn't even thought about, about, uh, about seeking, you know, a nomination to the board, but it, you know, there was, uh, there were a couple of members of the board and a couple of members of the university council who contacted me. And I guess they were opening up the nominations process back in 2011, 10 years ago. And they said, uh, no, we think you'd be a good addition to the board. We need your types of skills. And I said, Oh, okay. Um, sure. So I let my name stand, uh, and, um, uh, was, uh, fortunate enough to earn the confidence and, and, and support of my peers on the university council. And then to, um, to be, uh, I was reelected three more times since then. And, and I'm coming to the end now of my, uh, of 10 years on the board. Wow. And so it's been quite extraordinary because it's a, it's been a time of um, tremendous uh, uh, 
advancement, I think, at Queen's. I mean, obviously there are challenges. <laughs> there are massive challenges in the Ontario uh, and the global university, post-secondary education sector in general and universities in particular. Um, certainly uh, early on, Queen's was facing very, a very grave financial situation. Um, you know, there were serious questions too about the sustainability of our pension plan. Um, and so a lot of the early discussions and challenges were very financial in nature um, and, um, and not helped by the fact that Ontario still to this day uh, uh, invests less in post-secondary education per student than mm -hmm. any other province of the country, which is not a smart thing or a healthy thing. Mm -hmm. And while keeping, while freezing tuition, you know, may be attractive for students, um, it's terrible for universities, right? Because, uh, you know, that's obviously a key source of income and an and, and necessary to invest in high quality, uh, you know, faculty and, and programs, right? And so, um, so that, so anyway, that's been a real challenge. But, um, you know, I, I think where Queens, I think, has really advanced is, uh, is getting to a place of financial sustainability and really transforming the place from, you know, a, 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 a place that had a, a substantial national presence and national impact for many, many years, but, you know, was, was a little bit insular and, and, you know, often risk averse and not that, and not that diverse. And there's been, I think, a really exciting transformation of the university, still a long way to go, but an exciting transformation, you know, maintaining the incredibly high standards that Queens has always had um, in its, uh, the, the, in its research and its, its students and in its faculty um, you know, um, and maintaining this unparalleled student experience that we're so lucky to have and, and the opportunities for student leadership that are unique. Um, but I think on top of that, you know, we've become much more conscious of the whole world around mm -hmm. Queens and, and uh, you know, the, uh, there's been an exciting, you know, uh, growth and diversity in the campus um, and, um, uh, and, and a sense of, the how critical it is for Queens to deepen its 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 global connections and global pro, um, you know, advancing its research, uh, continuing to to um, invest in student experience and student well being, uh, and um, and and ensure that we 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 become even more diverse and inclusive and equitable. Right. So all of those have been really exciting discussions, and 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 I think. I'm very confident in Principal Dean's emerging strategy to ensure that, you know, we keep going, you know, in that direction. Fantastic. Now, let's go back a little bit further, if we can. What inspired you to join University Council and seek nomination to it? Well, you know, uh, back then it was, it was really just a desire to... Um, it was a desire to make a contribution to Queens because Queens had played a very big role in my life, as you can, as you've already seen. Mm -hmm. um, I, what I didn't mention is that I was quite involved as a uh, in my with my MBA class as as the annual reunion coordinator and and you know and 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 I was also a guest uh, lecturer um, now twenty five years in a row. I've been guest lecturing at uh, the School of Business since since my own graduation. And, um, and that's been, um, and so, you know, I was already coming to campus a fair bit and involved in various activities. And so I heard about the University Council, which is, I guess, the third 
you know, uh, leg of the queen's governance uh, stool, right? You know, it participates in a more limited way, um, you know, through its nominations to the board of trustees and its selection of the chancellor. And third, it's, it's, its ability to, um, you know, uh, advise, you know, the principal on matters of importance, you know, uh, to the university and, and the alumni community. And so I just thought, well, you know, um, this is a group that's, uh, that's, uh, has both a, an advisory role and an ambassadorial role. And I just was interested in being part of it. And the early years, uh, I'll admit, and I think, you know, anyone who speaks candidly on the, from University Council will probably say the same thing if they're around, around at that time. It was a huge body, right? And so the, so the meetings weren't very personal, you know, were fun, but, but we didn't get a lot done because we'd go and we'd go in some massive, it was like being an undergrad again, because you'd be in a massive lecture theater and the chancellor would make a speech and the principal would give us, make a speech. And then you go off into working groups in the bowels of one of the buildings, right? And you never knew exactly what would come out of all, all of this conversation. And then you'd show up a year later, but now it's a group of just 40. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, there's a lot more engagement, right? And a lot more dialogue and a lot more ability, I think, for alumni who are participating in university council to actually, you know, um, build relationships with uh, senior, uh, senior administrators and leaders at Queens mm -hmm. um, and, and, and to, to have kind of a two-way flow of dialogue and, and an advisory contribution that's, that's useful and meaningful, right? Mutual, right? You know, so um, I, I think it's become a much more interesting and, and, and valuable body uh, to the university uh, as a result of it. So with that in mind, why might other alumni from Queen's University consider running for a seat this year? Well, I, I think, um, it, it, I mean, it really depends on you, you know, and, and, and the contribution you want to make, right? Um, but, um, but I think it is an opportunity to, uh, to engage more deeply in your own matter and in, in the university uh, to understand issues connected to its welfare, but also the welfare of other uh, post-secondary institutions and the sector in Canada, right? So you learn a lot, right, about, uh, you know, the, the challenges uh, and the needs and the opportunities of a, of a major Canadian university. So, you know, so anyway, so there's a learning benefit, um, you know, and there's an opportunity, of course, to contribute the skills you have, right? And, and so... Um, and I guess the the third piece is is the opportunity to participate um, in 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 a way in the governance of the university or to be engaged, you know, in in university governance. We do have a few trustees. That, obviously, the six trustees, sorry, the six councillors who are members of the board, but we also have councillors who serve on different committees. Um, and you know, one thing I'm proud of as chair of one of the board committees, uh, the External Relations and Development Committee. We've actually consistently for many years had several university councillors who are members of that committee and therefore are directly advising the board of trustees, you know, in on matters related to external relations and development. Um, and finally, I guess there's the ambassadorial, right? You know, uh, uh, and this is something we have to develop more. But, um, you know, I, I think we've got a good direction in that we're asking councillors to really think very deliberately about, okay, what contribution will they make every year to Queens? 
uh, you know, and, and how do they see that ambassadorial role, right? I think the opportunity to connect what we're doing at Queen's strategically, philanthropically, to connect these, these opportunities to alumni, I think is a really powerful one, right? So that alumni don't just see it as, oh, that's that great place I went many years ago, but this is a place that's, that's doing things that are very relevant to, to my life and, 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 and the life of, you know, uh, of people everywhere today. Fantastic. Thank you. So before we close today, I'd like to hear a little more from you too, Daniel, uh, as some of our other uh, folks that we've talked to have talked about ways in which alumni, uh, wherever they happen to be in the world, ways in which they might still be able to stay connected to the university and to each other, especially in light of COVID-19 and uh, mm. not being able to meet in person. How can alumni stay together and stay connected to the university? Well, it's interesting, uh, uh, Dinah, because I think that now it's actually easier to do that than, than before, right? You know, because uh, you don't have to travel. <laughs> so, and, and so, you know, the, the, uh, it's interesting because I think we've, there's been a real, in some ways, this isn't purely, this isn't 100% a good thing. There are some risks to this, but there's been a real productivity dividend, I think, that people who are knowledge workers have really enjoyed. Uh, you know, I guess the, mm -hmm. the flip side of that is people who, who are essential workers, frontline workers who work in retail, you know, um, there, there's a real risk of, a, of an inequity and a divide here that we need to be conscious of. Um, but having mm -hmm. said that, for people who are, you know, uh, Queens grads, um, you know, there's, and, and have the means and the ability to connect to each other virtually, um, you know, it, 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 it is a great time because um, so many of the events that are happening now, whether it's, it's, it's doing some, some learning where, you know, you're, you're, you're learning from, from faculty and, and experts and fellow alumni who've got something interesting to say, uh, you know, the webinars mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, I've, I've done, I've done, I did a webinar last year, for instance, for the Smith School of Business on reputation management, right? Um, I'd never done one for, for, for them before, but I'd done lots of in-classroom stuff, right? And I'd done some, you know, other events and things, gone to events, but it's much harder to organize yourself to go to a physical event, you know, that's in one city, you know, than it is to log in at uh, a convenient time and listen to somebody with something interesting to say for an hour, right? And so, so I'd encourage people to take advantage of the opportunities to learn from uh, the expertise uh, at Queens, both faculty and alumni, uh, to take part in alumni events and, um, uh, and reconnect with people, um, to be part of homecoming activities, you know, whether they're in person or virtual, I think there's, there's an opportunity there. Um, and, and never to underestimate how much interest the university deeply has in the, the perceptions, the perspectives, uh, uh, the advice of its alumni, right? Um, and so whatever faculty mm. or school you went to, um, I, I, I'd be 100% confident that those involved in leading those faculties today want to hear from you, right? Um, want to build a relationship with you, want to engage you, because in the end, one of the greatest things we can all do to add value to our own degrees, you know, and the reputation of the degrees that we hold is by, you know, staying engaged with the university that, uh, that helped shape us. 
Great, thank you. And now, have you any advice for current students as well on staying engaged, staying active, and certainly staying well as they continue yeah. to uh, do their studies uh, remotely, but also engage with each other through their social activities also remotely too? Any advice there? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, for what it's worth, a few things that have kind of guided me. I mean, uh, I'd say, first of all, relationships really matter, right? Um, and that, uh, you know, um, one challenge that we often have in our lives today of, of you know, with, with all the screens in front of us is just, just being really present, right? Being really present. Uh, you know, it's like before we started, I said, I'm going to shut down my email because I don't want something popping up, you know, while we're talking, right? You know, and, and so, so that's, that's been a really great to have a great conversation with you today, Dinah. And, and, and I think just being really present and not trying to multitask, I think is really important. People can tell when you're on Zoom and you're doing your email. Don't do it. You know what I mean? You know, especially if you're a consultant because, you know, the client is paying for your time. You know what I'm not doing right now? Email. I'm listening <laughs> exactly. to your words. <laughs> <laughs> There's no choice. Um, what else would I say? I'd, I'd say, you know, um, learn, learn and, sh and, and develop your ability to think critically about the world, but never think cynically about the mm -hmm. world. To me, that's been really important, right? Like, um, we need more critical thinkers who, who, you know, when they see a piece of content on the internet, uh, or a bit of advice from a celebrity buy this product or whatever, are you really thinking critically about why that's in front of you? And what's behind that, right? You know, that's thinking critically, but you also have to be able to think as an optimist and, you know, cause in the end we need people who are going to solve problems, not simply diagnose them. Right. So, so that's where, what I mean by, by not by avoiding cynicism at all costs. Um, you know, careers are long and, and, you know, where you start is not, you know, almost by definition, it's, 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 I shouldn't say by definition, but almost certainly where you start is not going to be where you end. And, you know, um, be deliberate about your choices. Uh, think of the value you can bring uh, to the people that you meet and work with along the way. Um, try to avoid making career decisions for money, unless you have to, if you have to, of course. But, but you know, in the end, you know, think about the opportunity and the experiences, the value you get and the value you give. Um, and you're more likely to, uh, to be successful over the long term. What sage advice. Thank you so much. Anything else to add before we close today? Well, just a note to just wanted to thank you uh, for for your interest in the work of the council and the board, and 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 I hope that um, uh, if if nothing else, the series is helping to give students and alumni both uh, a perspective on uh, uh, what's going on at Queens and and the opportunities to uh, to get involved and uh, uh, give and get uh, you know a little a little value from uh, from your university. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. That's so kind. My pleasure. So folks, we have been chatting with Daniel Tisch, member of the Board of Trustees at Queen's University and member of University Council. We've learned so much from him about his time at Queen's through two degrees, his career path since, and the many activities in which he is still engaged with the university. Thank you very much for your valuable time. We really do appreciate it. Great pleasure. Thanks, Don.
Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of In Session. I'm Dinah Jansen, and today we are talking with Dr. Anjali Helferty, ArtSci 06, the Interim Director of the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment, a Queen's University counsellor, and also a current contestant on CBC's The Great Canadian Baking Show. Hello, Anjali. How are you? Hi, good. How are you? Fantastic. Thank you so much for giving us some of your time today. It's I've been really excited to talk to you for a while. You're a very busy person. I am busy. <laughs> indeed, indeed. It's great to be here. Yeah. So I just uh, just talked a little bit about you right at the top there. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe the work that you do at the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment? Sure. So I just started at Cape. We call it. Uh, it's a little easy, rolls off the tongue a little bit easier um, in July as the toxics campaigner. And because our director is currently on leave, I have moved into the interim director role. So I've been really focused on toxics during my time at CAPE. The um, Canadian Environmental Protection Act um, is, was last reformed in 1999. And this is the kinds of things that protects us from our day-to-day -day toxic exposures. So what's in cosmetics, what's in air and water, or what's in you know, um, our fire retardant clothing, or like really just the, all the things that we interact with on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, mm -hmm. The legislation for that is 20, more than 20 years out of date. And there's been uh, a promise for a number of years, governments have been committing to reforming CEPA, the Canadian Environmental Protection Act, and it just has never quite become a priority. So I'm part of a campaign among a bunch of other environmental organizations pushing to get this reform passed now. Um, there's a couple of really critical problems with CEPA, and I'll just really briefly talk about it. Um, but one that's really important to me um, as someone who thinks about justice um, and also from a, the physician science-oriented perspective is that CAPE doesn't properly protect people who are at a vulnerable, or uh, sorry, not CAPE, SEPA. SEPA does not properly protect people who are at vulnerable life stages. So like teenagers, small babies, and then say pregnant women um, in terms of protection to fetus, that um, it doesn't consider those life stages when it thinks about toxic exposures. And it also, mm -hmm. also doesn't consider scenarios where um, someone might live in a place um, like say Amdenang near Sarnia, the First Nation near Sarnia, um, where there's a lot of industrial pollution nearby. So that isn't properly addressed in the current version of SEPA. So there's really, there's a really deep need for reform to just protect people in Canada from toxics. Okay, thank you so much. Now, Let's hear a little bit about your time at Queen's University. You are ArtSci 06. Mm -hmm. uh, from your biography, uh, I also understand you were involved in quite a lot of activities while you were a student at Queen's. Can you tell us about your studies when you were here and also what you did outside of your coursework? Sure. So, uh, yeah, so I was ArtSci 06. I, um, I came in as ArtSci 05 and like many um, did the victory lab. I um, I did a degree in environmental chemistry. I would say I wasn't a terrific chemistry student. I, um, I liked some things about being a chemistry student, but I was, uh, I was engaged, really engaged in a lot going on 
in the Queens community. So I was really involved with musical theater as a stage manager. So I stage managed quite a lot of shows. Um, I was involved in environmental activism. I worked at the AMS as social issues commissioner. I was a Don as well. Um, and it just, that was really what kept me happy at Queens and kept me going. So I'm eternally grateful to my fellow chemists for um, letting me look at their notes and helping me with helping me study so that I could get through my chemistry degree. Uh, but, but ultimately it was the other piece, the other aspects of my time at Queens that really made it a time I look back on um, with a lot of warmth. <laughs> Not to discredit actually, I, I mean, I actually had a lot of really wonderful professors, mm-hmm. um, some of whom I'm still, you know, I still connect with when I come to campus. Um, I think I just, I just wasn't, yeah, I just wasn't a great student, to be honest. But at the same time, afterwards, you went on to do graduate studies, and now you have a pretty amazing career, too. So how did you move from point A through to now where you are uh, to your career? You, I understand you did a PhD at U of T? I did. That's, I just finished it uh, in August, actually. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm delighted to be done. Yay. So the, um, I think there, there is something that I reflect on in terms of, I think there, there is a, something to be learned here that I would tell myself if I was an undergrad. So I found myself in the middle of second year realizing that I had, I had picked a degree that actually wasn't sufficiently close to where my interests really lay that would really draw me to spend the time that it took in classes, mm-hmm. but I wasn't willing to make a pivot because I felt like I was already in too deep. Um, and it turned, in retrospect, the middle of second year is not in too deep. You know, I yes, I would have had to maybe spend a little more, more time at Queens. I spent a fifth year anyhow <laughs> um, because of the AMS time, but, but switching and finding something that, that, really drew me to the learning, I think would have been worth my time. So my later, I didn't go right through to grad school. I worked for five years in youth climate activism coming out of Queens. Um, And then from that, realized that I'm really interested in organizational systems, coalitions, um, sort of the justice oriented work in activism. Mm -hmm. And that's been the focus of my master's and PhD. Okay, thank you so much. Thanks for sharing. So you were also a member of University Council. And uh, I understand you had been for quite some time. What inspired you to uh, join Council and seek election to Council? I mean, it's a good question. It was 10 years ago. And now I'm having trouble remembering what prompted it in the first place. But I I do feel really connected to Queens. I think um, I feel like there's a a lot of opportunity at Queens and a lot of really smart, interesting people and, uh, and wanted to contribute to the Queens community. Um, so yeah, so I ran for council 10 years ago and was elected. We used to have six year terms. So I served a six year term. Now we have four year terms. So I'm now at the end of my 10th year on council. Wow. Thank you so much. So uh, tell us about some of the work that you've done on council during your tenure. I mean, so I have contributed to council, I think in a, in a couple of strategic ways. We, there's, 
the way the council is structured is um, is we have some special purpose committees. <laughs> so I think I've been I've been able to contribute to the general conversation in council about equity, about diversity, um, about indigenization. These these kind kind of I mean these words are. I think flying around Queens <laughs> wildly these days, but I think um, we've had some really interesting discussions at council and especially recently with the principal about uh, about sort of the the culture of Queens and um, and what what we can keep and what we should change. And I've been really pleased to be able to contribute to those conversations. And then I've served on a couple of special purpose committees that, that are sort of one-off projects. Um, one was focused on communications, for example. Um, but I think in, in retrospect, looking back on my time on council, there were people, other counselors, and I'm sure you're talking to some of them, who really dug in on the organizing side of council and make, trying to really make council um, really effective and really contribute to Queens over um, as, as a body of, of interested alumni. And I really respect that work. And it's something that I, I wasn't that involved with on council, but I think um, is, I guess I would say is, is, has been really valuable. And also thinking about homecoming, like I think counselors have put a lot of time into that. Mm -hmm. um, being on council mostly coincided with being in a PhD and it ended up not being a perfect moment in my life to throw a lot of time into council work. So I, I've ended up having to sort of pick strategically where to engage and not perhaps as much as I would have liked. Okay. All right. So now let's shift gears a little bit. I also mentioned at the top that you are a current contestant on CBC's The Great Canadian Baking Show. So we'd love to hear a little bit more about your love of baking, especially what you call procrast baking. What is this phenomenon? <laughs> so I think many people in their PhDs find something that that we do when we should be doing our PhD. <laughs> and <laughs> for me, that was baking. And it was really inspired by watching the British version, um, the British baking show and realizing what, you, what amazing things people can bake in their homes and uh, wanting to test that out myself. To be honest, largely inspired by, for sure, a love of the baking process, but also a love of the eating. <laughs> that results from the baking process. So I was like, wait, I can magic croissant into my own home. <laughs> you know, that felt like it was, it was worth some attention. Um, and then baking, like, unlike a PhD, baking is something that you do in a finite amount of time. It has an end and you get something out of it, which you then can share with your fellow suffering PhDers. So <laughs> Uh, you could achieve every day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You could, you, you had a win every day with baking. Cause even when things go a bit wrong with baking, usually you end up with something tasty, you know? Yeah. So I think, uh, that, that really spoke to me <laughs> as someone struggling in the middle of their PhD. <laughs> Indeed. Thank you so much for sharing. I did a lot of procrastinate crafting during my doctorate as well. So I completely understand. Yeah. I mean, I guess I would say I don't think I don't regret the time I spent baking. I don't think it made my PhD take longer. 
I think I, for me, I needed, um, I needed the, the concentrated writing time, which I did like on a timer. You know, I, I really got up in the morning. I always did my writing first. I'm saying always, this is the later years <laughs> after the, the fumbling of the early years. But I, you know, I always did my writing first. I, I had like a lot of accountability systems with friends who were also trying to get their PhDs done. And then after I'd spent a few hours genuinely concentrating really hard to, to figure out some analysis or get some writing done, that was what I had to give that day to writing. So sure, I could have switched directly to marking papers or doing the, the teaching prep or whatever else I had to do. But I actually think it was really good for me and good for my well-being and good for my brain to have something else to do. It's a bit different. All right. So that is uh, that is procrastinate procrastinate baking and procrastinating in a nutshell for anybody thinking about grad school and any of our grad school listeners or anybody who's been to grad school may understand and have their own procrasty thing they like to do too. Now. Okay, so how did your love of baking and procrastinate baking lead you to competition on CBC's The Great Canadian Baking Show? This is huge. Yeah, I mean, this this really was the experience of a lifetime. I, I never thought I would be on the show. I auditioned every year. So I've auditioned four times for the show. And I always thought I'll audition. The audition process is super fun. It's more fun, not in a pandemic, <laughs> but it's still fun in a pandemic. So, um, I mean, I felt like I knew the producers at this point, you know, I'd seen them every year. Um, we'd spend time together. I baked in front of them and they tasted my baking. Um, and the great thing about the normal audition process is that you audition with a bunch of other people and then you all get to eat each other's thing <laughs> that they brought in. It's just like a baking free for all amazing day. So I just thought, okay, once a year I'll do this. It's like my baking vacation and um, I'll just do it until the show ends. <laughs> and so um, I, and, and I could, I could have lived with that, you know, that was a pretty terrific experience. Um, but yeah, getting on the show this year totally blew my mind. Amazing. Well, congratulations to you and and, yeah, what a, and you. what a fun little vacation that you've been doing uh, for the last few years. That's yeah, amazing. It's been great. <laughs> I, I really recommend anyone who's thinking about auditioning for this. Just the audition process is so much fun. Just do it. It's great. So with the new season of CBC's uh, The Great Canadian Baking Show launching on Valentine's Day, February 14th, uh, can you tell us about what it was like to actually compete. You don't have to get into the detail of who did what, but who baked what, but what, yeah. what does the competition actually look like? Especially for those of us who may not have actually seen the show. So there's, um, in every episode, there's three bakes and two of them you prep in advance. Mm -hmm. So it's quite a lot of prep for the show. You walk in the door with, um, with a lot of practice and a lot of recipes developed. And then there's one bake that's a surprise, the technical bake. So, and it does, it's not, it doesn't have the full information provided. So um, it's a surprise bake. And there's also some pieces missing that we need to use our baking knowledge to figure out. Um, so yeah, so we we filmed it um, as it's shown on the show. We filmed two bakes in one day and one bake the next day, the longest bake. And 
and it was just, it was so much fun. You know, it's your, it's a focused time to do this thing. That's a hobby, but that I love with a bunch of other people who love my same hobby. You know, like it's, there's never in my life. will I have another time where the thing that I'm doing that day is bake all day. You know, that's not, that's not the career path I've chosen. That's not, it's, it's a, it is a hobby for me. Okay. So, um, so it was this sort of magical alternate reality where the, you know, instead of thinking about toxics all day, which is also important and I care a lot about, I got to say, okay, how can I make this, this bake amazing today? (laughs) That's fun. So I'm wondering then too, as somebody who has seen some reality shows here and there, Mm. how does it work? Is it, you're not getting yelled at by some Gordon Ramsay type, are you? You No, we really aren't. (laughs) And that is why I wanted to be on this show. This show is friendly. Um, There's no prize. (laughs) You know, there's, it's just about the glory, the glory, (laughs) the glory and the cake plate. (laughs) But it's really, it's about uh, it's about the experience and the other bakers, um, you know, it's, it really is a community of bakers and, um, you just, you know, we'd say going in every day, just make it hard for the judges. Everyone do great so that it's really hard for the judges to pick who's the best and who to send home. Um, and we all genuinely wanted everyone to excel because, you know, we were friends and immediate friends (laughs) And, you know, we were in this bizarre experience together and, and the, really the saddest thing was people leaving. Oh. <laughs> we just wanted everyone to stay the whole time. So that's, that's my pitch for a new reality series where sure there can be a winner at the end because ultimately it's about the experience, but we all get to stay the whole time. Considering my official pitch to the world of <laughs> developing TV. <laughs> but this sounds like a really great show to watch. I fe- I don't watch reality TV because I don't really enjoy watching people like say terrible things behind each other's back. And I'm proud to say there will be none of that. Yeah. With, you know, it's all, this is a love fest. Like this, I mean, it suits that it's on Valentine's Day. I think in, in COVID times, this is the right show to watch. You know, you'll feel good. You'll love the bakers. Maybe you'll be inspired to bake some things, which is great. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a great show for this moment. Well, I'm looking forward to watching. Thank you for inspiring me. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully some it. of our listeners will be inspired too. So, okay. It sounds like too, during the filming, it, you had a lot of work to do uh, for a number of shows because you had three things to bake for each program. So that's a that's a significant amount of your time, but you also have a life and uh, and a career outside mm-hmm. of this. So how did you manage it all? What is it like? Uh, how do you fit in this? I'm going to be on a TV show for an extended period of time, but I still have a job. What does yeah, that look like? It's, um, it's actually really hard. Yeah. <laughs> I was bad. really busy and I the period of time prepping and being on the show is all a bit of a blur for me um I think I I said to myself at the time you know do your best this came at a busy time you know I was finishing the PhD I had just got the new job and I was also wrapping up um, some other contracts with school and um, TA training and yeah it was it was a really wild time So I wouldn't say, I guess the adjustment I made, and this is the adjustment I made in my PhD as well, is 
you know, do as well as you can while maintaining sanity. <laughs> Ultimately, sanity is number one, and then yep. everything else can follow. <laughs> so, um, but I really, I rarely saw my friends during this time. You know, I couldn't, it was still, the weather was nice enough that we were, you know, distance hanging outside, and mm-hmm. no distance hanging outside. Oh. Every free moment was baking. Um, or grocery shopping or washing dishes (laughs) but I also I knew it was a period of time that would not last forever and I wanted to give what I could give in that time okay so hot take what's your favorite thing to bake uh croissant croissant oh my gosh okay so that's a pretty complicated process too and a lot of butter oh it's so much butter (laughs) so So this is my hot take on croissant people are intimidated by croissant and I don't think it, you need to be intimidated because okay. the thing with croissant is that you just have to not fight the dough. If it like, cause you're rolling it out, right? I don't know if, if people have seen the show that people make puff, they make different kinds of pastries on the show. You just, when it resists you, when it doesn't want to roll any further, you just fold it, you pop it in the fridge, you come back to it later. The reason croissant gets, croissants get messed up is when people try to force it. So okay. I actually feel like croissants are, because there's something that you do at intervals in the daytime, it's actually a really nice thing to do while studying or while writing your PhD or whatever it is, because you mix the dough, you roll it out, and then it sits in the fridge for a few hours. So then you put your timer on and you do a bunch of writing. And then you get this break where you get to go roll dough. Um, so so schedule-wise, it fit well for me. And I went on a real croissant kick last year when I brought it for my audition. Um, I brought a couple kinds of croissant. So I really wanted to perfect it because it's such good eating. <laughs> I'm going to take up the challenge yes! because I've always wondered Do about doing croissant. Please tell me how it goes. (laughs) I certainly will. But yes, there's uh, one place in in Kingston show has really, really good croissant. But how do I create that in my own kitchen? But the I I always sort of looked at croissants being something daunting, like baklava. Baklava is one of my favorite desserts of all time, but I dare not (laughs) try it because I I don't know if I want to roll out the very thin many thin layers of phyllo that I made from hand. Oh my God. That's, do I... But I think, I think the thing, like it's a low risk project, you know, but a I, lot of time investment. Though. You got to enjoy the process. <laughs> as long as you're not, as long as you're enjoying it while it's happening, if you end up with an imperfect croissant the first time, I call it a win. Okay. But for croissant, just be gentle. You'll end up with a beautiful croissant. Okay, well, I'm going to take up your croissant challenge and see how it goes. Yes, because I'm tired of sad grocery store croissant. I want my (laughs) own croissant. Okay, you've inspired me. (laughs) Okay, so now let's circle a little bit back before we close today, if we can, to the procrastinate baking. Of course, some of our listeners are students. So do you have any advice for them, Anjali, about staying well, but also staying on task while they're at home during the pandemic doing their studies yeah I do I do think this is really hard and um I do really feel for undergrads or people in the middle of their research um I was teaching a class in the spring when it suddenly went 
online and I was teaching a first year seminar and I, I did really feel like <laughs> it, it was a hard time. Um, so my suggestions are, are really mostly the things that you hear <laughs> that are actually true, <laughs> which are like, go to bed at a reasonable hour, <laughs> you know, have, have a buddy. There's so many systems that enable us to connect um, over the phone, over Zoom, over other video or WhatsApp or whatever. Um, you know, have a, have a little crew of people who are all committed to keeping their studies going and just text each other. You know, I'm, I'm starting now, I'm doing 30 minutes. This is what we did like throughout our, our, my friends and I doing our PhDs, you know, we would text each other to say, I'm starting 30 minutes now, I'll tell you how it went in 30 minutes. And, you know, there'd be a group of seven of us and two other people would say, great, I'm waiting for your check-in, you know? So just like a couple of accountability systems. So, and you know, you're not alone. But I used to sit on, you know, even pre-pandemic, I used to sit in my home with a friend on Skype, you know, muted, just working together where we, we could see the other person was there working and knew that we, we had some mm -hmm. community and connection. The other thing I would say is do, do your studying first. If you're in a PhD or master's and have a lot of writing, or if you're at the end of undergrad, do your writing first. Do the thing that really takes a lot of, of brain power and attention um, at the start of the day or at the time when you know your brain works the best. So for me, that's, that's in the morning. Um, and I know that in the afternoon, I can do things that are a little easier on my brain. Um, and I also get a great sense of accomplishment from having done my hardest thing. Um, and then in the evenings, I did not work during my PhD. I didn't, I rarely worked on the weekends. Um, I just, you know, I, it's a little different in undergrad, I think. Um, <laughs> I remember working a lot in evenings and weekends, but, uh, but yeah, just having some structure to my schedule and then having breaks, I think is really important. It's all the things that people say, and I know it's hard to follow unless you're at the point of desperation where you need to test out some of these systems, but, um, but accountability groups, have an accountability group there. Maybe that's new. <laughs> Great advice. Thank you so much. Anything else to add before we close today? No, I think I, it's really delightful to, to be reconnected to Queens. I know Queens is kind of going through a moment of who are we and what are we going to be? And um, I think that's really, really important for Queens to do. And um, I'm kind of excited to see, see where the university goes in the coming years and, you know, really develops, develop the community connections with Kingston and, um, and kind of emerge as, as a new kind of leader, I think is, is really exciting. Thank you, folks. We have been chatting with Dr. Anjali Helferty, the interim director of the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment, a university counselor here at Queen's University, and also a current contestant on CBC's The Great Canadian Baking Show. Thank you so much for sharing so much about yourself, your time at Queen's, your career, and of course, your time on with the CBC on the, on the Great Canadian Baking Show. Thank you so much. It's been a real great. pleasure. Yeah, it's been great. I appreciate you having me here. <laughs>